Hello, everyone. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers the what used to be called the Global War on Terror and much more. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Today, we are joined by my friend and colleague, Caleb Weiss. Caleb is a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation and editor at the Long War Journal. Today, we're going to be discussing one of the most important and active jihadi theaters in the world, the Sahel in Africa. Caleb, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Always glad to be here. It's finally, you know, we need to get, you know, the co-host thing actually, you know, on board, but we're getting there. We're getting there. I I, I think we're we're really close, really, really close. Yeah, we're getting there. (laughs) So um, thankfully that uh, we're not talking about Afghanistan or Pakistan or Iraq or Syria. I'm very happy about that. Although this news, Famous yeah, right. This news is quite depressing. The days of jihadi violence, the largely plaguing the deserts of northern Mali, have long gone. In the last several years, attacks have moved steadily southward, engulfing southern and central Mali, and the jihadists are now threatening the Malayan capital of Bamako. But perhaps just as worrying is the situation in Mali's southern neighbor of Burkina Faso where the French news outlet Le Mans recently reported that jihadis there, primarily Al-Qaeda, control about 40% of the country, and where the United Nations says that roughly 1 million people are currently under siege. The jihadis are now spilling over into littoral West Africa, particularly striking in Togo and Benin. So we got some really, really good news as usual when we do our podcast, Caleb. But again, it's not Afghanistan, so we we, we could take some (laughs) solace in that, right? Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, right? Yeah. That, if, if look, if that's what I get a get a win out of, then I'm going to take it. So to get us started on this pressing topic, uh, we're, we're going to start off with Mali. Caleb, paint the picture of what this what is the situation in Mali. Go ahead and and paint that picture for us. I think the most important thing right now is the you know steady flow of attacks near the capital of Bamako. Now, I mean, just to be clear, I mean. You know, JNIM, that's the Al Qaeda's group for support of Islam and Muslims. That's their 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 main branch in the Sahel and West Africa. You know, their constituent groups have done attacks in and around Bamako for years. 2015, they did a you know a a large scale you know hotel assault. There was an attack on a resort, I believe, 2017. Last year, they did uh, three suicide car bombs on a, a you know Mali's main military base in a northern suburb. Um, but what's really happening now is a concerted effort to essentially encircle the capital with these, you know, so-called attack zones, wherein they're doing these attacks, you know, sometimes 10 to 12 kilometers away, you know, not that far, attacking, you know, government installations, military posts, you know, police departments, whatever, just to create more pressure on the capital. And I, I think this is something that people need to be paying more attention to that, you know, you know, as we said in the intro, the days of where jihadi violence in Mali are kind of only situated in the north are long gone. You know, this has been happening since at least 2015 when JNIM's Katiba Messina, uh, sort of their sub-branch that's responsible for central Mali and, and southern Mali, sort of picking up pace down there. Um, so most of the violence in Mali is situated in the center, but now, you know, you've had sporadic attacks in the south, and now you've got a concerted effort around Bamako. And I think this is, you know, sort of part of the jihadi playbook. I mean, this has happened elsewhere, right? I mean, this was most famous in, you know, Iraq. Uh, You know, we were having a discussion the other day that, 
you know, sort of AQI or Al Qaeda in Iraq and its you know successor, Islamic State of Iraq. They did that around back around Baghdad. They did it twice, Caleb. It happened in two thousand and six, and and in two thousand and fourteen. And yeah, that conversation that you had, you know, part of the reason why uh, we started Generation Jihad is uh, you know those these conversations we have offline. I'm like, boy, I wish we could share that. And uh, that's that's what Caleb and I are doing today. And it wasn't just they did it in Iraq. Um, we watched this in Afghanistan uh, play out from two thousand and fifteen uh, up until capitulation and or capitulation in 2021, where, you know, that was actually very sophisticated. Uh, the uh, They first started at the provincial capitals. You, you saw assaults in twice in Kunduz City, which is the capital of Kunduz province, in Ghazni City and Ghazi province, and Farah City as well. So between 2015 and 2017, the jihadists, which of course was the Taliban, backed by the Al-Qaeda, the Taliban in Pakistan and all of its allied groups. They basically surrounded the, the capitals and then actually moved in, held portions of, held the city for, in one case, two weeks, in the case of Kunduz and, and Ghazni, about a week and a half. And then we watched that unfold in the summer of 2021, where they went province by province until they ultimately surrounded Kabul. Uh, and then we also saw this in Somalia in 2007, when Shabab uh, retook yeah, retook uh, Mogadishu after they lost it the first time around under the Islamic Courts Union. So this is a, a time-proven playbook, as you noted, Caleb, but rightfully so. Um, they're using their re- limited resources and their tactics wisely. They don't have armies like we have in the West. They're not maneuvering armor and, and their, their divisions of infantry. But what they have, they deploy it. I remember the one of, in 2006... When multinational forces Iraq was talking about the, uh, they actually called it that. They called it attack zones, and they they found maps. They also found them in 2013, 2014, where they divided up the areas around Baghdad into sectors. We have intelligence. We know that this is how the jihadists operate, and I think we're we're seeing the exact same thing in Bamako. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And point out i knew that we would we'd go back to afghanistan somehow yeah i told you i was gonna make a joke but it's not very funny but But it's okay uh but no you said something earlier about uh capitulation and i think that is the key word for for what's happening now certainly i I don't think that we're near anywhere where jnim can march on or into bamako like they could do probably you know terrorist attacks and whatever but marching on the capital is sort of out of the question right now but this extra pressure of implementing these attack zones around the capital is exactly for capitulation either to you know full demands of you know we want sharia law to govern mali or you know to collapse the the ruling junta there entirely which i mean mali's background is led by a military junta that came into power i believe in 2021 that overthrew the previous government that came into power from a coup so a coup within a coup which also played out in Burkina Faso, but I think part of these attack zones definitely put extra pressure on that you know military junta in Bamako to do you know either abide by the jihadi demands, which sort of the government in Mali has kind of done in central Mali, wherein localized sort of peace deals on several villages uh, allowed for jihadis to enact Sharia law in return for reduction in attacks or freedom of movement or whatever. You know, sort of the same thing kind of happening here of. JNIM wants to put that 
extra pressure, if not some sort of IE or some sort of quote unquote siege on Bamako to get what they want. Yeah, that, it's it's a great point, Caleb. And and I think people really don't under or some people don't understand the amount of pressure this puts on um on governments. You know, when Baghdad is basically surrounded and under siege, the Iraqi government was under enormous pressure. If you're an Iraqi in the hinterland provinces and you see the government under siege, you see your capital under siege, how, do you think that the government's going to come support you? It causes people to, you know, who may be sitting on the fence to jump way, one way or another, usually in a way that that's going to cover them. You know, we saw this, you know, I'd be remiss if also I didn't mention in Pakistan, we saw a very similar strategy and that put, that really put enormous pressure on the Pakistani government, which cut numerous so-called peace deals with the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan from 2007 up until 2000 and I'd say around 11, up until when the, the Pakistani military was forced to launch an offensive because what happened there, that was, a, you know, when I say beautiful, I mean, like when you're watching it on the map unfold, not the not praising their, their operations, but watching how they did it, they, they just continued to lay pressure and, and up until the point they were launching attacks in Rawalpindi, which is basically the military capital of Pakistan and in Islamabad rating and and this forced you know the first the Pakistani government allowed Sharia to be imposed and these groups to have um wide range of activities in the tribal areas well who cares about the tribal areas nobody goes there it's a, it's a black zone and then they started spreading out into the districts in what was then northwest frontier province which is now Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province in in northern Pakistan they started the government capitulated to the Taliban there and allowed them to take control of those areas and impose Sharia. And things were even bad in the provincial capital of Peshawar. So it's, you know, I, I realize I'm repeating myself here, but it's a very effective tactic if they're able to carry it out properly. And I guess that's really, you know, from what I'm seeing in Mali and with the French leaving, not that they were doing all that well while we were there, but there was at least some type of stopgap. Uh, the Malian government is... It's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. You know, a couple of years ago, if you asked me, well, what would be the next state to fall to the Taliban after Afghanistan, I would have probably put most of my money on on Somalia. And now... Fall to, to jihadis, not necessarily the Taliban, but yeah. I'm sorry, to fall to, I mean, I'm sorry, yeah. to, to the jihadists. Yeah, my bad. Um, yep, stuck in Afghanistan. There we go. Um, <laughs> Can't escape it, man. But no, I, I think, I, I don't want to say that we're you know, to the stage where it looks like, you know, what you're describing in Pakistan, but, you know, the, the stage is being set. Yes. Clearly the stage is being set around Bamako with these, these early attacks. It's, it's clear what they're trying to do. It just depends on how successful they'll, they'll actually be. Um, and you're right. Like, you know, when the French were there again, they didn't, you know, they didn't obviously accomplish their main goal of reducing violence. In fact, jihadi violence expanded while they were there. Um, but there was sort of a stopgap for Bamako, but that's sort of gone now. And, you know, the, the junta in Bamako is, you know, they, they've relied on, you know, the Russia's Wagner forces since, you know, last year when, when they deployed. But, you know, Wagner has sort of made things worse as well. You know, they're doing massacres on civilians in central Mali. They're involved in some sort of, you know resource extraction deal just like everywhere else in africa i mean they're they're doing you know creating chaos in the north i mean wagner is basically just caused things to to go also downhill so i mean take that combined with the lack of you know french presence uh, a lot of lack of european presence when the, the french left 
you know, last year, a lot of the European partners left. So now you just have the UN and Wagner who don't cooperate. Then, you know, with Wagner being there, you open up to Mali military taking on more harsh policies or committing more massacres, you know, based on influence of Wagner. I mean, the situation is definitely ripe for more jihadi violence and for JNIM particularly to take advantage of that. You know, that's not to say the Islamic State isn't doing their own thing. In fact, like the Islamic State has done uh, a good deal of attacks in the north recently, and JNIM has sort of tried to create a coalition of Tuareg nationalist groups and themselves to go after ISGS, or what's now called the Islamic State Sahel Province. Um, so there's an uptick in violence sort of in the extreme north on the borders with Niger. Um, so it's just the, the situation across Mali is just entirely worsening. Then now you have you know a coordinated effort around Bamako. You know the stage is being set for sort of you know more jihadi control over that over that country. In fact, that, I mean that's what they want. Again, to be to be determined how well that actually goes. But it's clear JNIM is trying to take advantage of this. Yeah, and I want to be very clear. What I was trying to say there was, you know, look if you know, and, and we're looking years right before if if this even if they could actually capitalize on what they're doing. It's very difficult for them, given their limited resources and then also the ability of foreign states to intervene, maybe to knock them back. But my my point on that was, you know, I, w- I would have been I would have put all my money on Somalia being the next state to you know fall. Now I got to look at. I got to look at Mali, I got to look at Burkina Faso. I got to, you know, yeah, which I think Burkina Faso is even, I, I would put them above. Yeah, Mali. right. I mean, and this is, this is how things have evolved by this theater. And dare I say the jihad is exploding in Africa. I wanted to make one real quick point before we, we move over. I think this is the perfect time for us to move over to Burkina Faso. But before I do so, if this Al Qaeda Islamic State split didn't happen, just think about how much more effective the, because the Islamic State is devoting resources to, take on Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda is in, in the same and they're creating alliances, right? Think about their, the added capacity that they would have had. I always thought the same thing in Syria. What, what if that schism between, uh, you know, that created the Islamic State and the, the schism between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State didn't happen if they had more unity of action with these groups? How much more effective? Obviously, we can't answer that question, but I suspect things would be far worse than they would be if um if this didn't happen so in some ways this schism has uh you know made things a little bit easier because these each of these groups have to you know keep in a keep a look over their shoulder to to battle their their rival so to speak right i mean pros and cons to that we definitely pro for you know certainly western intelligence agencies is that you know aq and is fighting each other is good right you know i hope they both lose sort of situation but on the other hand for the locals on the ground using, you know, the Islamic State Sahel province, you know, what they have done to really distinguish themselves from Al-Qaeda or or try to beat back Al-Qaeda is take out, you know, their anger or their violence on civilians. On one hand, like, yeah, it's probably good that they are fighting or is that split because it helps, you know, Western Intel kind of dig at that divide and try to play them off on each other. But also, like, at least in the Sahel, the civilians have kind of been the main victim of that split of sort of retaliatory massacres between the two groups, the Islamic State utilizing civilian massacres as a a marker of, you know, what they are about or what they're trying to do or try to enact their, you know, consolidation of power. So pros and cons to that, um, which is the unfortunate side of, unfortunately, there's no one big positive of, yeah, they're, you know, they are killing each other, but 
unfortunately, civilians are also caught up in it. And what happens when civilians are being targeted in, in massacres by the Islamic State? Who do they turn to? Do they going to turn? Right. They have to turn to Al Qaeda. They can't turn to the government because they're the government doesn't exist, particularly up in the north. Yeah. Like in the north, like you have like nationalistic Tuareg groups or other militias that are for you know local ethnic groups up there. But JNIM has alliances with a lot of those groups. You know, Al Qaeda plays the politics game. They are not they are not afraid to work with you know non-jihadi groups. They do that all the time around the world. And I think Mali is a good example of that, where they a lot of these you know nominally pro-Tuareg independence groups. Uh, they have alliances with JNIM, or like they, you know, a lot of commanders have been in both, or you know, a lot of family ties between the two. So I mean, it's kind of nebulous, but the point is that like, if they're not turning to JNIM, these civilians who are caught in the crossfire, they're turning to one of those groups. But chances are, those groups also have their own ties to AQ, where AQ supports them, or vice versa. Yeah, and, and to you know, I like to dumb this down. You know, when when talking to people that don't follow this as close, Al Qaeda is the big tent jihadist party, and the Islamic State is my way or the highway. And you know, if you're a Tory nationalist group, you're gonna you're gonna lean into Al Qaeda a little bit because they're they're certainly you know not looking to conduct those massacres. But let's uh, move on from that and let's take a look at Burkina Faso. Uh, Caleb, go ahead, paint us the picture there. We said earlier that, like, if you're going to rank which African state has, you know, a chance of being controlled by jihadis, which, again, this is purely just a thought experiment. We're not saying this is actually going to happen, but it's just a thought experiment. You know, everyone used to think Somalia, and to a good degree, it's still Somalia, even though there is that counteroffensive against Shabab. Shabab still controls large swaths of Somali territory. But Burkina Faso, I think Burkina Faso is sort of, you know, this forgotten... Field. I mean, now it's getting more attention, but, you know, just this week, the French outlet Le Monde reported that, you know, around 40% of Burkinabe territory is under jihadi control. And that's largely JNIM or Al Qaeda. The Islamic State maintains a small presence in Burkina Faso, especially in the East, but it's predominantly JNIM. Not only that, but the UN also reports that at least a million people are under siege in Burkina Faso, jihadi siege. You know, mentioned it briefly when we talk about Mali, but, you know, JNIM does this all the time. They will, like, literally surround a village and cut it off from the outside to get what they want. And they're doing that to at least a million people in Burkina Faso. It's stunning. It's, it's staggering data. What's the estimate of JNIM in, in Burkina Faso? I don't know, right? But, you know, I'm going to guess people might say, high hundreds, several thousand. When you got that many people under siege, when you have a million, you have to really look at those, think about what those numbers are telling you. It's just a quick, I don't know the answer, but I'm guessing the estimates of uh, JNIM and Burkina Faso are probably on the low end. Right. I mean, that's that's true estimates for most jihadi Absolutely. groups. Usually people are low, and I, I try to avoid giving estimates of, of foot soldiers, whatever, because you also take into account of you know, how many are like part-time fighters? How many are just, you know, joining out for a brief amount of time? Don't know. Like, does that factor into your troop estimate? I mean, of course it has to, but how do you account for those? So, I mean, troop estimates are always, always low. Um, so whatever people are estimating for JNIM and Burkina is probably definitely low. Also a good reminder, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, is that, you know, AQ also desires to control and govern territory. It's not just the Islamic State. With 
control over the territory in Burkina and parts of central Mali and some parts of northern Mali, they are enacting Sharia. They are governing those locals. Um, just this week, there's actually a report uh, from central Mali where JNIM cut off the hands of supposed informants of the Malian military. Like that shows a control over over that village. I mean, what what else does that that you know demonstrate? You know, they're doing that in eastern Burkina Faso as well. I mean, so it, it's it's AQ also is about governing territory. They just have a different strategy, different timeline, different whatever than the Islamic State. And I think Burkina Faso should be seen as you know sort of the model or example of you know, hey, AQ is also trying to do the same thing. And I think people forget that about AQ. They think of it as sort of only wants to attack the West or only sets its sights on the West or Europe or whatever, but they don't. They also want to control territory. Yeah, listen, that was the the big lie or the big misdirection that really started to see in the early 2010s, particularly with the rise of the Islamic State in mid-2010s. They tried to portray Al-Qaeda as a global terrorist organization that wants to attack the West. That's their goal. It was never that. Al-Qaeda was always about establishing the caliphate, reestablishing the caliphate, and imposing Sharia. I mean, that, that, that governing, what did the Taliban do as soon as it took over Afghanistan? It wants to govern. It, it had named a government. What did the uh, Islamic State in Iraq, which was part of al-Qaeda, do when it controlled Anbar province, large areas of Nineveh province, and other sections of other provinces, Saladin, Diyala province, even parts of Baghdad province? It governed. It, it imposed Sharia. It was doing things like sorting the vegetables in the stand. Remember that, Caleb? I don't know if you recall those days where they would go to vegetable or fruit, you know, people who were selling fruit and vegetables and saying, hey, you can't keep the cucumbers and tomatoes together. That was the level of control they wanted to influence in these places. So uh, I, I've always felt that this was, I never really understood the motivations for you know describing Al-Qaeda as being big global and I, I think it was just probably an effort to... Our friend Tom Jocelyn would call it disconnected Yeah, dots. right. And it, I think that was ultimately it, Caleb, right? They wanted to say, well, these groups that were local, that were fighting on their Al-Qaeda's banner, really aren't part of Al-Qaeda. The only thing that matters as part of Al-Qaeda is core Al-Qaeda. And that's just a bunch of old fogies that are hiding out in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the rest of it isn't really Al-Qaeda. Except we see things like the Emir of Shabab is, on Al is, is a possible successor to Zawahiri. Right. The the emir of AQI, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, possible successor. He's in the line of succession to, you know. And just just one quick point on that of, you know, now that I'm, we're talking about it, thinking about it is, you know, a lot of people have, have questioned why Al-Qaeda, you know, hasn't, you know, announced successor to Zawahiri or whatever, you know. But I think one important thing people need to also think about is you have not seen any Al-Qaeda branch question it. Mm -hmm. Nor have they released any statement eulogizing them in nothing. It's silence. The discipline. Which suggests some sort of command and control across the board to maintain that silence and carry on as usual, which probably suggests they already have someone. Now, Caleb and I did have not had this conversation that you're hearing right now about the Al Qaeda and the not naming the leadership. I have a feeling he has my phone tapped because I had this conversation with a, with a good friend. I wish you were in on this, Caleb. Yeah, we were talking about uh, just that, the command and control, the discipline within the groups. You know, I also think Al-Qaeda has moved to a point where having to follow that playbook of announcing the leader, you know, I don't think it matters to them like it mattered a decade ago when bin Laden was killed. 
Well, what does that say about okay? I don't know, but to, it, the, the signs that I get and some others that the individuals I talk to, we think it means that they don't feel pressured to have to respond to the reports of Zawahiri's death, to have to publicly name a successor, that they're comfortable enough in their command and control of their both their central organization, Al-Qaeda is comfortable enough, as well as it's uh, the, the managing its branches or affiliates, or whatever you want to call them. They just don't feel the pressure, to, the, the, the need to have to do that. They're already organized by these leadership councils or shuras anyway. Of you know, who's to say it's not just now they're just relying on you know the main shura instead of a like one main guy, because you do have a disparate global leadership. So I mean, that that should also be considered part of you know these theories of who is succeeding Zawahiri. You know, personally, not to I mean this is a big tangent from away sure. from Mali and Burkina Faso, but I think important conversation to be having. Yeah, no, it it, it came up, so figure we got to hit that right. Yeah, to get back on Burkina Faso, let's let's talk about. You know, not only, you know, is 1 million people under siege or, you know, 40% of the territory under jihadi control is, I mean, violence in general across Burkina has just been exponentially, you know, expanding over the last several years. And that's not just jihadi violence. I mean, state-backed violence is also going insane. I mean, Burkina as part of, you know, a response to jihadi violence is, you know, they've created, you know, what's called like the VDP or, you know, Volunteers for Protection of the Homeland, essentially civilian militias you know if civilians can be militias whatever but they're arming civilians to become these you know localized militias that ostensibly are meant to protect themselves from jihadis but a lot of times they've done their own massacres or they've done extrajudicial killings i mean so you're basically militarizing society which historically has not been good anywhere but that's what they're trying to do here and, you know, we talked about Wagner a little bit in Mali. You know, there's huge rumors going on right now that Burkina is the next destination for Wagner. You know, we saw what happened when Wagner goes into, you know, Mali. See what they do when they go into CAR. You know, CAR, again, we we had this discussion the other day of Wagner technically stabilized the capital, Bengi, technically. But they did so in a bloody, bloody way. And now they're extracting millions upon millions of dollars in you know resources probably going to happen to Mali at some point looking like it's going to happen in Burkina Faso so what does that do this makes everything worse yeah it, I, I think people don't understand this is gold for jihadist groups right you got a foreign militia coming in executing people and imposing their will that is recruiting fodder and that is propaganda fodder for for these groups that this is really, really dangerous. Um, you know, no. we know that what Wagner is not going to operate in. I mean, look, it was hard enough with the U.S. when it was acting in a far more, you know, again, there's a lot of debate on this. But look, I've embedded with U.S. troops and watched them do some things that to put themselves in, in, in harm's way and let people they knew who were jihadists get away. I can recall I was in Anbar province in um uh, it was it was a town of Haditha, and I was with a group of Marines, right? And uh, you know, we get a call. You get a call, call over the radio. They're looking for a lime green opal with four people in it. It's known to have you know explosives and whatever in the trunk. And we see the car while we're out on patrol, and they you know, didn't open fire on it because you know they actually wanted to try to detain them. But also, we were in a crowded market and. I saw a Marine take off on the car, starts fleeing down the road, and a Marine 
kick off the on foot, try to chase the car down. Not a shot was fired in the incident. And I'm sitting there going, man, if that was me, I, I, I might've just lit it up, but you know, that Wagner would light that up. Wagner, yeah, exactly. My point on that whole little diversion there is Wagner would definitely lit. There would have been no doubt whatsoever. And we operated the, the U S military and NATO operated under, you know, and still jihadist groups used our presence in these countries, despite how restrained we were, um, the U.S., you know, the jihadists used those incidents, whatever they could in order to, to recruit, to, in order to create propaganda against us. So Wagner is just, that's, that's just gold, recruiting gold for them. Right. No, and, and I, just, I do want to make a quick point here of, you know, Bill and I both believe Wagner is bad. Russia is bad. Wagner is terrible they're obviously going to make things worse, but just to be a contrarian here, play devil's advocate of looking at them from a Malian or, you know, Burkinabe perspective, particularly Burkinabe of where, you know, when the coup did happen last September, there were a lot of pro Russia protests. Like they actively wanted more Russian presence of looking at it from their perspective. And I think people should look, do this thought experiment of, you know, you've had a decade of, French military expedition essentially across the Sahel trying to combat, you know, jihadis. And you see jihadi violence get worse in your country. And France ostensibly pretty much did nothing. Uh, and jihadi violence continued to get worse and worse and worse. Your government's not doing much. You know, what are you what are you supposed to do? Like you're probably going to look for other alternative, you know, solutions. And I don't want to say that Wagner is the answer because I personally don't think so, but I don't know if that's my choice to make. And I, again, I don't want to see Wagner in, in Burkina. I don't. But also, like, on one hand, I don't blame them for looking that way. Like, And I know that's kind of harsh to say, but like, they've had a decade of failure, man, of, of, from Western powers. So what are they supposed to do? Now, I, I couldn't agree with you, Mark Caleb. I mean, I, again, not excusing what Wagner has done not even agreeing with the decision to bring them in. But, you know, it gets back to that issue when you're in a situation, you know, where you have limited choices. How, how am I to blame, you know, again, the Turigs in Northern Mali turning to Al-Qaeda in order to battle the Islamic State? I'm not there. It's not my decision to make. I would obviously disagree with it, but I can kind of understand the logic behind it. I also like I don't know what like the US or France can do to combat that mentality yeah. of sure you could do messaging, you know, campaigns, information campaigns, try to put pressure on these governments, but look at like the junta in, in Ouagadougou, the the capital of Burkina of they're already pretty anti French, anti West. Like what leverage or authority is a French diplomat or an American diplomat gonna have in trying to convince them not to go to Wagner? Like, I, I just don't know what we can do to stop that from happening at this point. And I, I think that, you know, for any, you know, American policy listeners, policymakers who may be listening of like, something you have to, to think about is, you know, is that local perspective of they've had that failure, but like, what leverage do we have still? And I think that's the main question of like, how do you even convince them to not go that way when they don't like you in the first place, or they see you as having failed? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Caleb. So we'll wrap this up real quick. But before we do, violence is uh, now uh, seeping into the West African lit littoral states. Talk to us about that. How is this flow of violence in the littoral states uh, occurring? 
Yeah, I mean, it gets always it gets back to Burkina Faso. Like Burkina Faso is the the impetus for all of this. The violence spreading across the the, the country has basically allowed mainly JNIM to start attacking in, in littoral West African states. So talking about Ivory Coast, Benin, Togo, um, you know, starting in, in Ivory Coast in 2020, you know, they they used northern northeastern Ivory Coast as a rear base for a long time. Uh, and then basically the Ivorians and Burkina based a joint operation in June, maybe it was May 2020, sorry, basically flushed them out of this, you know, nature preserve in northeast Ivory Coast, uh, which basically caused JNIM to start seeing Ivory Coast as a, you know, an attack spot. So they started attacking Ivory Coast, um, but they sort of dropped out there. And now the focus is more on Togo and Benin. And, you know, using bases in Burkina Faso, JNIM has basically just, you know, ravaged northern Togo and Benin and, and, and it's expanding. And, you know, in the last couple of weeks and months, now we're starting to see IEDs in Togo and Benin, which IEDs are always an indicator of, you know, terrible things of they are building capacity, they're building capabilities to expand that insurgency. There's been some reporting, good, good research on, you know, sort of the justice areas and and for the most part it is coming from Burkina Faso but like what happens when this starts becoming more localized so JNIM starts recruiting local you know Beninese or you know Togolese and they they start forming their own little local cells and stuff you know I think that's something people need to be worried about and pay attention to Uh, and one thing I do want to add here is is Ghana Ghana you know U.S. ally U.S. partner in the region I think they're underreporting what's happening uh, there's no way that you know their neighbors on both sides are getting you know attacked or used as you know rear bases and they're not. You know maybe Ghana is doing something that you know the other states are not, but we know for a fact that JNI is recruited in Ghana. There was a Ghanaian suicide bomber a year or two ago. You know if 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 he wasn't recruited there, there's, obviously there's something in Ghana that you know they're underplaying, and I think that's really important to look at and. You know, when does JNIM actually start attacking Ghana and Ghana can't hide it? Also something. And, and one last point is like, it's not just JNIM too. Of The Islamic State is also in northern Benin. And I think people need to be paying attention to that as well. The Islamic State has long used Benin as a transit point between the Sahel and Nigeria. But now they also decided to start attacking Benin. Probably in response to JNIM attacking Benin. But regardless, now you have both of them in Benin, which was looking to be the next sort of jihadi insurgency in West Africa, if not also northern Togo. Yeah, if you would have told me 20 years ago, uh, Caleb, that like Togo, Benin, Burkina Faso were, would be the jihadist, probably some of the biggest jihadist hotspots in the world, I probably would have rolled my eyes. I would have had to probably have to look, to it, look at a map first and then figure out where it is and then go, why would you say this? And yet here we are. This is part of that uh, that expanding of the jihad that also that has happened since nine eleven. You know, we went to Afghanistan to try to contain Al Qaeda, but it it didn't work. I mean, this this all speaks to a, a. I mean, this is a bigger issue, a greater failure. But I'm going to go back to the issue of IEDs. I just want to make a real quick point on that. That typically isn't something that is. You know, when when you start seeing the IEDs, it's typically not organic. I don't just go to my basement one day and go. I'm going to build an IED. That's usually an indication of some type of outside influence and expertise flowing in. Because even if you have 
the manual to make an IED or watched a video online, it's not that easy. You, you, you know, hands-on experience. If you don't have that hands-on experience, you often will lose your hands and much more. And uh, yeah, so that's that's also something that that deserves looking into. I'm not, I don't saying I have evidence of that, but those are yeah. that's a key indicator that these groups are getting outside support. And I also think it's a sort of a, a indication of wider strategic thoughts yes. from these groups on this. Of if they really just wanted to have you know sporadic attacks in Togo and Benin. It would just be that it would be sporadic attacks against you know gendarme or you know police posts or you know these remote military outposts. It wouldn't be strategically placed IEDs on these roads to target the transport of military troops between bases, because that's the, that's them weakening the defense positions in the north to allow them to better consolidate you know their their reach. That's exactly what it is. So it's it's also thinking from them of how to weaken security in these areas so we could further advance. Yep, and the IED is a very effective weapon to do so. No, and that was that was sort of the indication of Burkina Faso way back, I think, in 2016 mm-hmm. or 2017. I think 2016 of sorry, seeing IEDs. Yeah, I, I, Caleb, I actually remember that conversation that we had back then. That was God, yeah. seven years ago. I remember us going, ooh, look at this. This is interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's how it's a long war. I mean, we named it the Long War Journal for a reason. It really is. And and this, you know, look, there's ebb and flow to the jihad, the successes and failures by jihadist groups. But I just, you know, you just, I think if you look at that graph, it's just creeping upwards it's slowly but surely yeah. It fits and starts at, at different points. Again, we're just, you know, trying to read the tea leaves here. But like, you know, this, this is to say, like, you know, the, the littoral states can't do something to combat the flow or stymie the flow. They can Certainly, you know, we're not saying that Janayim is going to march on Bamako tomorrow, you know, nor are they going to march on Wagadugu. But the conditions are being set yeah. for them to consolidate power essentially from Bamako down to northeastern Benin. Yeah, and let's let's face it, that 40% of uh, of Burkina Faso that's under Janayim control, essentially, and obviously some Islamic State influence as well, those are safe havens. Those are areas that they're using to build, to launch that potential fen- offensive take it. And I agree with you. This is us, this, this is us, you know, putting up the warning uh, of it happening. All right, Caleb, do you have anything else to, to add? No, I think that's it. I mean, if, if you want to bounce to Somalia real quick, I, I do think. Absolutely. Just, a, you know, a quick discussion on the counteroffensive there, I think is warranted because, you know, one thing that like, yeah, again, I don't want to discredit Somali's success. They have been able to take around, take several villages and smaller towns. But one thing I'm noticing they're doing a lot is sort of, and they've done this for forever, this is kind of more evident now, of overstating how many Shabbat members they're killing. Of You're not going to be killing 100, uh, 100 Shabbat members every time you take over a small little village. Like, you're just not. Like the, I mean, I know that it's propaganda is part of the game, but... At some point, you do have to call them out on it. Of like, Shabab is also retreating from these areas because you have independent, you know, researchers or reporters or civilians saying, you know, they left without a fight, and then you have SNA, the 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 military, come in and say, well, we actually killed like sixty of them. You know, which is it? Um, again, not to discredit their success, I wish them nothing but success, but it's just you know, I think they, they need to be more calculated of how they're winning this propaganda game because that's easily refutable by Shabab. Yeah, nobody, look, playing the body count game is, it's a loser's game in my estimation. 
I watched us do it in particularly in Afghanistan. It's it, it, it to me, it's a sign of weakness and, and not, and not a show of strength. Uh, the, because, you know, you start adding this up and you go, wait, they killed 30,000 Shabab fighters last year. Wait, I thought the estimate was only five to 10,000. Something isn't right here, but you know, look, if you can't be honest about how, you know, what's happening on the ground, it's, it's, again, it's a real, I always said you could tell how well a, um, particularly when we do embeds, right. You could tell how well things were going in an area by how the information operations or the public affairs, uh, units treated the, were they willing to be honest with you and talk about strengths and weaknesses and problems they're having as well as the successes. If you're just screaming success, you, you probably are, you're probably having far more failures than you, you know, than you're willing to admit. No. And like, there are successes that they could report on that doesn't, you know, isn't tantamount to essentially lying. I mean, yeah, they are taking over villages. They are taking over these strategic areas. Like, you know, publicize that, celebrate that. But you don't need to like say that, you know, we killed 100 here, we killed 150 here, we killed 60 here. You know, eventually someone's going to tie that up and be like, well, this, wait, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. Uh, again, I, I just want to be clear that, you know, wish Somalia the best. This is like probably the most optimistic anyone has been about Somalia in a long time. It's just Somalia needs to calibrate its successes uh, and also figure out what they're going to do with these these villages and towns. Of liberating is not the same as holding. You're reading my mind. Um, it's one thing to take it. It's another to hold it. And uh, I think we've seen in theater after theater, that is uh, the real challenge because these groups, they exploit weak governments and weak militaries. And then if Shabab is just retreating from these villages, tactically retreating, where are they going? Where are they staging? Are they just biding time to go back into these villages? And in some cases, they, they have. Uh, there's a town called Bahdo in, in the north where, you know, the small military and their Maliswi, you know, clan members did take it back. But then Shabab released photos a couple of days later of them openly in the village. Uh, so it does happen. But like, you know, that's something that, you know, everyone involved in this conflict from, from the U.S. to, to Somalia needs to have of who's actually going to effectively hold these villages. Is it the military? Is it the Mile Weasley? Is it, I'm, you know, I'm going to, you know, I dare I bring up the A word again, but the, look, we saw this in Afghanistan districts falling to the Taliban. The Afghan military would send in the commandos, their best troops, who were being misused, by the way, to retake instead of what they should have been, you know, what they're better used for or designed to conduct raids and, you know, raid training camps and safe houses, things like that. Instead, they were using as basically as shock troops to clear districts. Those troops would leave after several weeks. The Taliban would walk back in. And, you know, again, not saying that that's going to happen in Somalia, but I've seen, you know, I saw that movie one too many times to not be overly uh, skeptical about this. No, and I think another long-term thing people need to be thinking about is what are the the long-term implications of arming the Maoisli? Like, we're essentially arming clanism, which historically has not been good in Somalia. So at what point do they stop, you know, fighting Shabab and turn their guns on a rival clan or something along those lines? Or the I SNA possibly, right? Or or the SNA, if the, there's something, some beef or some inter-clan battle there. You know, Somalia, you know, I, I don't want to reduce it down to just clanism because it's more than that, but clan plays still an integral role in the state and they still struggle with clan fighting and there's no way you can convince me that arming the Maoisli, who are essentially just clan fighters, will not eventually also turn those weapons 
provided by the state on a rival clan if they ever come to blows. Like this is, you have to consider that. Absolutely. Look, and I think this is, again, this is part of the strength of Al-Qaeda and its fellow travelers, right? The movement of Taliban in Pakistan played the, the, the tribe wars very well. And that's how they took control of the tribal areas. Obviously in Afghanistan, the Taliban did a good job with that. I think that Shabab navigates the clan politics far better than the, the, the Somali government does. And that's why these conflicts continue. That's why they're in this perpetual state of violence because the side that's, you know, the underdog in this, you know, the jihadist groups, they do tend to do things a lot better at the local level. Yeah. And I think that's what you just said of like Shabab playing the clan game. I think that's, that's the name of the game here too, of, you know, they're already doing it, but you know, at what point do all these efforts to manipulate clan feuds between different sub clans, clans who may be involved in them, obviously clans who may not be, but related to that clan, what point does that just become unmanageable for the Somali state and beneficial to Shabab? Yeah. Yeah. These are, you know, like we've been watching these conflicts for decades now, Caleb. It's, uh, you know, we'll, it, they certainly don't, uh, we don't lack material to, to discuss. And look, Caleb, thanks a ton for coming on today and uh, for uh, sharing the news on what's happening in, in the Sahel and, and beyond. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us for today's episode. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave, leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.